Yacht Rock Radio, on air and online at YachtRockRadio.com. This is Yacht Rock Radio, and I am Adam Ritz, and I'm lucky enough to be sitting uh, in a trailer with Mr. Al Stewart. Hi, Al. How are you? Thanks for joining me. I'm fine, and I'm happy to be here. Uh, and we just can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak to us, so thank okay. you, Mr. Al Stewart. Sounds good. Uh, the voice behind uh, the hits, Time Passages, and um, You're the Cat, uh, now for decades... You've done thousands and thousands of things beyond those two hits, and we appreciate all the work you've done, all the songwriting you've done. We've done some, uh, uh, read some of your bios and how you've, you really have a science to songwriting. Um, is that how you would call it? No. <laughs> no? <laughs> um, some, I guess some philosophies behind songwriting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I think in the past I've said that um, I try not to write about subject material that other people write about, so... Um, if, if, the, if there are a lot of songs about Baby I Love You or Baby I Don't Love You or You Love Me or You Ought to Love Me or Perhaps You Once Did Love Me or, you know, and it goes on. I, I will write a song about the ceiling of the British Museum, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my other rule of thumb is that um, use language that is not in other songs. Uh, I think I'm probably as much into words as I am into anything else. And uh, so instead of writing, oh, I don't know, baby, you should not hurt me in this way, you know, write about a brontosaurus, or better still, write about why the brontosaurus isn't there anymore, or better still, write about why, why it is in the British Museum. <laughs> You're getting, there's a flavor to it, you know. So um, if you follow these two things, what will happen is that you won't sound like anyone else, and uh, your songs won't come out, you know, sounding like anyone else's. And uh, to me, probably that kind of originality, the stuff that you see with, say, Tom Waits or... Richard Thompson or Leonard Cohen or more recently with Joanna Newsom. I don't know if you play any of these people, you should. Um, the, these are songwriters who don't sound all right like anyone else in the world. And, and uh, you know, th this is what appeals to me. Are you a dad by chance? Yeah. And how many kids? Two. And so when you're talking about lyrics and how, you know, you can get creative and interesting with them and write, right. write about the brontosaurus, I mean, that, that's, that sounds a lot like, you know, writing for children as well. Yes, I mean, is. your kids have to love this stuff. Oh, God, I, I, <laughs> when I was growing, when they were growing up, I mean, I did endless stories about um, refrigerators that were sick of being cold and they wanted to be ovens. And uh, <laughs> so the, the, re the refrigerator would be wearing six overcoats and it was still complaining it was cold. And, you know, I never made these stories up about basically inanimate household objects and how they all had feelings about basically wanting to be different ones. I mean, none of them wanted to be, you know, what they were. And I had a, a story about a, a television uh, and the hosts were horses, so everything had to do with horse racing and all the news. It was, was channeled into the news about, you know, hooves and uh, <laughs> that is fantastic. jockeys and things. Uh, did you write any, any, any song specifically just for your kids that no one else no, has ever heard? No, I haven't done that, but I am actually working on a book, um, which would be, I'm not going to call it a children's book because, um, in in my to my way of thinking, some of the greatest children's books of all time uh, are not children's books. I mean, if you look at oh, starting with Alice in Wonderland, I mean uh, mm -hmm. that appeals equally to adults. Uh, certainly, when you get into things like Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast trilogy, or I mean, there are a, a, a number of other Edward Lear. Edward Lear, on the face of it, you know, should be for children, but but there's a a very sort of painful undercurrent to everything that Lear did. Which brings up another thing, seeing as you've got me on the subject of words in general, and, and nonsense poets in particular. 
uh, Lear and Carol um, were lifelong virgins, which raises the question, does nonsense poetry create virginity, or does virginity create nonsense poetry? <laughs> These are the kind of things that I ponder and, and uh, put into songs. That is fantastic. Al Stewart is our guest um, on Yacht Rock Radio, and I wanted to ask you about um, the term Yacht Rock. Uh -huh. uh, if you remember or recall the first time you heard it, what you might have thought of it, uh, I can tell you from our fans and the people across the country, really across the world, that have fallen in love with this sort of subset, subgenre of soft rock, yacht rock that's so nostalgic from the late 70s and mm -hmm. early 80s. People love this music. Uh, d does that come across? from the stage. I mean, you're on stage playing the music they love, and are you, are you a little confused? Like, wait, what's Yacht Rock? What, what, are you, what is this guy talking about, Yacht Rock? Or um, did, you, did it immediately sink in and go, oh, okay, I get it, Yacht Rock? Actually, I don't get it. I mean, I, 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 think, <laughs> I, I, I think the little captain's hats are cute, um, but I have no, why is it Yacht Rock? I mean, there, there must be a reason. I, I have no idea. I, mean, I, I think the, um, the real pull to the, uh, the music fan's soul is that it's so nostalgic and uh, the no, quick... but why is it called yacht rock? Because it's the kind of music that uh, a very successful person would listen to on his or her yacht in 1979. Really? Good luck. So if we go back in time uh, and we're on a 65-foot yacht in 1980, um, the music we would be listening to is Christopher Cross, Michael McDonald, Ambrosia, and Al Stewart. Well, I mean, A, I get seasick, and B, I remember Natalie Wood, so it wouldn't have much appeal to me, I don't <laughs> Yeah, you do not want to get Natalie Wooded on, no, on a no, yacht, no. that's true. Uh, so, somewhat familiar with the term, but, you know, like we said earlier, you, you, from your side of the stage, you don't really have to get it. You don't have to know it. You're just playing no, your stuff. Uh, and, I mean, uh, well, I mean, I, on one level, I mean, it, it's very nice that people remember with the, a degree of uh, affection the, the songs that were done in that period of time. But I think I come from just a completely different background. I mean, I came out of the English folk scene, and for me it's all lyrics and ideas. I mean, the, the music was very much a secondary thing. Uh, so I probably approach this in a very different manner, you know. I mean, there are some nice things, and, and they're very melodic, um, but I, I come more from, like, you know, reading poets and, and literature, you know, and uh, that's my thing. So Yacht Rock, I don't know what it is, but if you like it, that's great. <laughs> and I think I did a couple of songs, the, the ones you mentioned, that maybe fit into that genre, mm -hmm. um, but there are probably four or five hundred that don't at all, you know, which, which uh, I mean, I have probably my most requested song is, is an eight-minute song about the German invasion of Russia in World War II, and that would not fit your format. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you brought up that it's eight minutes long, because um, the, the two top ten hits mm. from, from the 70s, uh, Time Passages right. and You're the Cat, are over six minutes long. Yeah, they are. I love yeah. that. I, I yeah. love that. And, yeah. I, you know, I was a kid in the 70s. I don't recall necessarily if the radio stations were playing radio edits and only they three did. and a half minute yeah, versions you know, of they, it. They did. They did edits. And um, does that, did that bother you when they edited it? Or well, did I you? mean, actually what happened was that the, the AM stations played the edit, but um, the FM stations would play the whole thing, you know. I mean, how do you, well, six and a half minutes, like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan is six and a half minutes. Now, how do you edit that? Yeah. What, do you, what do you take out, you know? So as a, as a true songwriter, you, I mean, you, you're not even a, you're, you're we talk about songwriting, lyric. I, I mean, you're like an English professor. That's what well, I'm I think, looking at here. I'm mostly doing language. Yes, language. At this point. You're yeah. a you're a lyricist. Um, did you have record companies, record people saying, Al, you know, stop with the six eight minute songs. They're hard to get on the radio. 
No, I mean they. I I was never told anything by any record company. I, I, oh, that's fantastic. It, it's, uh, except once, I think, just once. Um, but by and large, I mean, they, they left me alone because they didn't understand what the hell I was doing. I, I would say this song is based on a book by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and they'd say what? <laughs> <laughs> and then and then they would look at me and say, "We can't deal with this kid. Get out! Let, bring bring the Bee Gees back. You know, we understand that. You know." That's fantastic. <laughs> so uh, yeah, no, I, I just don't come out of that world. I, I don't have anything to do with that world. I mean, the fact that I did have a couple of pop hats was a total accident, and I think it was um, it was nice. It was like visiting it was like going to Disneyland it was like a totally different world but I, I didn't really feel that I belonged there or wanted to be there I was happy to go back to the folk clubs you know <laughs> so the songs that you mentioned um, the world you're happy to go back to mm. uh, when you were to you and your in your studio you're writing songs you're writing music mm. and I mean it's not like you wrote um, you're the cat, and said, "Okay, this is this is going to be a top ten hit in America." Or, no. do, or do you think that? No, 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 no. We I, that was my seventh album, um, and we put it last on the record just to get it out of the way. Just I to mean, get it out of the way. <laughs> you're kidding. So you're like, there are so many other songs I have that are better than this. Well, pretty much every other song on the album, I think, is better than that. But I mean, that that that's from a lyrical point of view. Uh -huh. uh, I understand that from a musical point of view, there were people who loved hearing the saxophone and they liked this, that, and the other, and the guitar solos, you know, none of which really mean a lot to me. Um, but, um, you know, people just love that record, and I, I understand why. I mean, it's got a nice, pleasant sort of thump to it, and it kind of moves along in a, in a, in a reasonably um, pleasing manner. Um, but I don't think it's particularly well written, which is why I put it last. Yeah. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that people... Um, don't really. I think I, I was once told that maybe only two people listen to lyrics on on records, which means maybe 98 percent of people don't. Uh, it's the first thing I hear. If you play me a record and I hear a line like "Ooh, baby, uh, I want to take you higher one more time," I change the radio station. If I'm listening to a song and it says this, uh, that this is about the construction of the Leningrad Canal system in 1936, uh, I turn the volume up immediately. You know? Now I know I'm. This is not how people think, but it, but it's how I think. I mean, because yeah. I didn't come to this from music. I came to it from books and literature and films and documentaries and and some music. So, uh, it, but what I'm doing here is I'm taking film, I'm taking literature, poetry, uh, I'm taking documentaries, and I'm taking music, and I'm taking language, and I'm putting them all in a big pot and stirring. But music is only one tiny part of what it all means and what it all is. Um, as it happens, the two songs that I've written, which um, have the most music and the least lyrics, are the two that were hits, and that t tells you everything you need to know. But I'll tell you one more thing you don't know, and th this will tell you even more. Um, it's not always the best things that become the most successful, and, and I will illustrate this by taking the example of one of two people who invented modern lyric writing. Um, one was Chuck Berry and one was Jerry Lieber. Um, and Chuck Berry has had one uh, million-selling single in his entire career. You know what it is? It's My ding a -ling. That tells you everything you need to know about commercial taste. I, all those great songs he wrote, You Never Can Tell, Johnny Be Good. I mean, he, he, he's written maybe 30 hits, Memphis, Tennessee. And the only one that sold a million copies was this in, in, inane song called My Ding a Link. Now, that, that is, I, I shouldn't be saying this, but that is public taste. Yeah. And I, I want no part of it. <laughs> That's an amazing way to look at it. Yeah. And, uh, and from speaking to you, I, 
part of it, I feel smarter from talking. I also feel dumber. I feel dumber for hearing this intellectual, uh, academic approach to music. Just, you know, an idiot like me that just turns on the radio that likes a song, hearing that there's actually some philosophy behind it and... I mean, I don't know. What would your What would be your second career if you weren't uh, a songwriter? I mean, I would guess English professor, uh, um, but that's an easy guess. I mean, brain surgeon? What are we talking here? What no, kind of no. intellect well, do no, we have no, here? No, 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 no. I, I just like words. I, I would Were write. you a straight-A student? Um, God, well, I, I came top in history, which is not surprising, but I, I was terrible at mathematics and uh, mm -hmm. terrible at science. I think I got the lowest score in the history of the school in general science. And okay, good. Then we have a lot in common. Then. Yeah, uh, I mean, I like the arts. I like language, you know. And um, But, uh, no, I mean, I, I can't. I only have two talents. I can rhyme almost anything, and I, and I can read a wine list. And these are the only two talents you need to go on the road and, be, and, uh, and sing songs. I mean, it's uh, pretty much nothing else. You, you learn half a dozen chords on a guitar, and you're off, you know. I mean, it worked for Woody Guthrie. It worked for Bob Dylan. And, uh, you know, this is the background that, that I aspire to coming from. <laughs> <laughs> Al Stewart is our guest, and I read on a bio they introduced you as uh, a quirky, your voice being a quirky, uh, folksy voice. Uh, you didn't write that. That, that, is that. How would you describe your voice? Because it is very, very original. Um, well, it's not original. It's pretty terrible. Um, you think your I, voice is terrible? I, I can only sing ten notes. I mean, I can do a scale just about. You know, I, I, don't, I can't really sing at all. Um, <laughs> I've never been able to. Um, but here's the interesting thing. I mean, when I was growing up, I despaired because uh, my parents realized I loved this and I was spending eight hours a day listening to records and I was even telling people when I was 12 what label I'd record for. I mean, I never wanted to do anything else but this in my life. So they bought me a tape recorder and I made the mistake of taping myself singing and, and, and I nearly died. I can't possibly sound like that. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, because I wanted to sing like Elvis, you know, because I, I came out of the generation that was Elvis and the Everly Brothers and uh, Jerry Lee and Eddie Cochran and all those people. And I didn't sound anything like any of them. It was absolutely terrible. And I was, I was in a, by 1962, I, I, I'd reached a point of utmost despair. I thought, I'm going to have to be a chartered accountant like my grand, grandfather wants me to be after all. Uh, and then along came Bob Dylan. And I realized he couldn't sing or play either. Um, but, but it, you know, he sounded like he'd swallowed a dictionary. And I, I thought, this is, this is incredible. I mean, this is, this is, if he can do this, if he can sing, you know, like, uh, oh, the purple haze of infinity goes crashing through the windows of my mind and the, you know, I can, you know I mean, if, if he can get away with that then there's hope for us and, and so I abandoned uh, my, my crusade to be Elvis um, and, uh, and then Leonard Cohen came along and he sang like Richard Nixon and I thought um, that's fantastic because these songs are so great that it doesn't matter that these people don't sing in an orthodox way and by the time I got around to listening to Tom Waits I thought well hey everything's possible all bets are off you can, you, you can sound really you can have the worst voice in the world and, and you can still do it well then there's hope for me maybe I'll start a, Anybody, start a band I, it, but you've got to have something to say uh, the mm -hmm. To, to me, it wasn't about how you sang. It was, do you actually have something to say, you know, uh, when you're using your voice? If you open your voice and you go, uh, war is bad, 
Um, and if it's, they start one, I will be sad. But if there isn't one, I will be glad. And then, baby, I can love you. There's a hit song right there. Uh, and if, if, you, if you do that, which is pretty much what Barry Maguire did, um, <laughs> I shouldn't <laughs> say that, uh, then, yeah, 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 you know, I mean, I, there's no hope. So at that point, I put my head under the, the pillow and contemplate suicide. But, you know, if Dylan comes along and he sings like a Rolling Stone or Lena Cohen writes Suzanne or, or any of these wonderful things, um, then I'm just transported to some other planet. I mean, like, this is the planet I want to live on, you know? I mean, I know none of this does your Yacht Rock uh, interview any good, but it's just how I think, and you asked me, so I'm telling you. Oh, you're absolutely wrong. This is a fantastic, this is all Yacht Rock. It's all about nostalgia and the feel and the music, it, it, absolutely. Uh, our guest is Al Stewart. My name is Adam Ritz. This is Yacht Rock Radio. Uh, we thank you for joining us, and I want to have some fun with you now uh, and talk about... Um, pop culture, radio and media, and how, how things have changed. I read that, that you had a, one of your long songs in 1969 had a, yeah. had a bad word in it, and it um, was quite the controversy back then. You don't have to say what the word is, well, I'm not but what say was the controversy? The, well, I will say this. It was not the four-letter version that you're thinking of. It was the present participle, and it was used <laughs> within context. Okay. In other words, I said, um, you know, it makes... Uh, it feels more like Richard Nixoning, and uh, uh, and it feels less like Richard Nixoning, and more like making love. You can imagine what the word is instead of Richard Nixoning. Okay. Um, and uh, it, that was an exact statement, you know, like of, of of what I felt. I couldn't have said it in any other way. It wasn't up for shock effect. It wasn't a swear word. It was an explanation of how falling in love feels. Okay. And the song was 18 minutes long. And it was hilarious because the, uh, the the Sunday paper, the kind of the shock yellow press, um, announced in bold headlines that it had been banned by the BBC. To which my reaction was, the BBC has never played a song that's 18 minutes long. <laughs> they weren't going to play it anyway. It didn't get banned. Right. <laughs> and now, you know, fast forward to today and mm. some of the stuff that you may or may not see on line on TV, on the air, and how unbelievably offensive or, or outrageous or controversial it might be, and you're thinking back to 1969 saying, I, that wasn't even that big a deal. Why? The well, times have changed. It wasn't that big a deal, um, apart from the fact that I appear to be the first person in, in England to have done it, and I didn't do it in, in, in a swearing way. So. Uh, and then decades later, the BBC gives you the Lifetime Achievement they Award. They, they First of all, they banned me, and then they, they banned gave, you, then, then they, they gave, gave you an me award. a Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> <laughs> you got to love that. So, so in the uh, 70s and the radio days, and you're, uh, you're focused on your music and, and how much it means to you, and then all of a sudden uh, the public that made what you think are the, is the worst song on the album, the hit, and now you're getting that attention and you're getting invited to radio stations for interviews, uh, playing radio shows or radio festivals. What was that all like for you? Um, well, like I said, it was like going to Disney World. It, it was a totally different planet. I mean, I'd come out of the... The English folk scene is a pretty serious affair. I mean, uh, it's people, you know, who take their music very seriously. And, uh, and in a way, there's a sense of deprivation because um, great, great, great artists, you know, who were, who were in England playing in the folk clubs were never played on the radio. I mean, a ton of them were never played. Most of my peers were never played. 
Um, and so there is a slight resentment in their minds of, you know, why? Why, why, why were we never played? Um, now, did they resent that their songs didn't get played, or did they resent you and think you were a sellout for having your songs played on the oh, radio? Oh, I'm sure some people did, yes. But, I, but it was only really two or three songs, and it was only for two or three years. So, um, you know, I, and of course, then I went back and, 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 and got immersed in, uh, you know, doing all the same things that I was doing before. So, but but my question, it was like when I saw Lana Cohen um, very late in life in, um, in an 8,000-seater amphitheater in Los Angeles, which he'd sold out. And I, was, I remember talking to, I mean, the rest of the world got it. America didn't get it, so they just didn't get Lana Cohen in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And I remember talking to disc jockeys saying, this is the, the greatest lyric writer in music in the 20th century, and you're not playing him. Tell me why. And they said, because he's not popular. And I'm looking at 8,000 people sold out in, in an auditorium. And I said, what do you mean he's not popular? <laughs> this, is, this is arrant nonsense. You know, like, uh, why don't you play this? And there is no real answer. You know, there's no, they, they don't have an answer. Well, they, we have the power to play that. So, so do, let you, us, do you play Lana Khan? I don't, but I will. Give me one, the one song I should play. Well, I mean, anything but Hallelujah. I know that's the popular one, but uh, uh, you can't really go wrong with The Stranger Song, and you can't really go wrong with Suzanne. But my personal favorite of his um, is probably Famous Blue Raincoat. Okay. And you'll find a great co uh, cover of that. If you can't stomach Lennon's voice, uh, then there are some great covers of that song. And you said Famous Blue Raincoat? Famous Blue Raincoat. Raincoat, okay. I, I, because a raincoat <laughs> is a boat. Yes. And there's nothing better than playing a song about a boat on Yacht Rock Radio. Uh, I, I, I have to Raincoat. tell you, that, that gotcha. it's a genius song. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, Al Stewart is our guest. I know you gotta, you got to get uh, ready for your show. I'd rather I can't, talk about everyone else except me, actually. I mean, I, this is what I've been doing in this interview. I'm, I'm not really... I, I'm happiest when I'm, when I'm able to plug people I think are great and are, and are underserved by radio. So... Well, who are some of the greats you've worked with? I know I saw the, uh, Al, uh, Alan Parsons produced one of your albums, yeah, and I know you play yeah. with some of these Yacht Rock legends now, oh, uh, occasionally here and there. You do some charity benefit shows. Yeah. Uh, some but, of your favorite, I guess, greats, as you'd say. Well, if you're going, to, going with the greats, um, I was on a... Oh, God, I opened for the Rolling Stones when I was a kid, uh, and when I was in like one of my first bands. No and, kid. How old were you? Um, I was a teenager. I'm not sure exactly how old I was, 17, 18. Um, and uh, so that was memorable. I mean, we shared a dressing room with them because there was only one dressing room. So here we are, it's the Rolling Stones, and it's us, and we're in a dressing room together. Oh, that's so but cool. What kind they, of room was it? Uh, uh, they were on, they were on their se second single, uh, I Want to Be Your Man. And I think it had just made the top ten. It was uh, Reading Town Hall. It was like about, I think, 800 people. Um, and uh, it was there was only one dressing room, and and then talking of sharing bills, I was on a bill with the Beach Boys. I remember that. I mean, they, you know, Brian Wilson's another hero, an extraordinary writer. Um, and uh, well, because we met all the Beatles, uh, and John Lennon let me play his guitar. That was the thrill. I mean, I wasn't on a bill with them, but um, somehow or other, I managed to get backstage and talk to them. So that was a, that was a thrill. J Jimi Hendrix nearly trod on my toe at a festival we were both on. <laughs> 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 and uh, over the years, I think, you know, you, you, I've run into quite a lot of people. Um, I mean, I, as you probably know, I shared a flat with Simon and Garfunkel, and, and that was a thrill. I mean, you know, at the time I was just a, a really young kid who didn't know anything, but you can pick up a, a lot of stuff living next door to Paul Simon, I tell you. <laughs> 
let's go back to that John Lennon story. Uh, wh where was it? Uh, you, you'd already been a, an established musician. No, you snuck no, it. No, I, you was, I think I was 17. You just snuck in as a 17-year-old and hung um, out with John oh, Lennon? It's a much better story than that. Let me hear it. Okay. Um, it was in Bournemouth, where I was living, and I was in a local band, um, the one that opened for the Rolling Stones, actually, as it happened. And it was in October of 1963, which was Beatlemania time in England. I mean, they just had um, She Loves You out, and the whole, the whole country had gone Beatle mad. And they came to our town, and they played in our town for a week at the Gaumont Cinema. And uh, it was, uh, I don't know if you remember, it was like a rock package tour time. So the Beatles only played 25 minutes, I think, and then there were, you know, like a whole bunch of other, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas were on the show, and there were, you know, all these other people. And um, they did two shows a night, so they came on and they played the first show. We were there for the first show on the first night. And uh, my friend, who I think was 16, I was 17, um, said to me, we've got to meet them. And I said, you know, this is Beatlemania. If you've seen A Hard Day's Night, you've seen the 2,000 fans outside the gate and the, and the police cordons. It was all of that. That's exactly mm -hmm. what it looked like. Um, so uh, he, he says, well, we got to meet him. He said, what guitar was Lennon playing? It was something he'd never seen before. And I said, well, I'd never seen it before. But I said, I think it's a Rickenbacker. And he said, that's it. He says, no one knows what that is. He says, we're going to go to the manager of the hall and tell him well, we're from Rickenbacker and that John Lennon is our client and we need to meet him. I said, you're out of your mind. I said, you're out of your mind. And he said, no, we're going to do it. So. Well, I, this wasn't my idea, obviously, and so we do. We knock on the door of the manager, who's a 50-year-old guy who does not understand why all these people are screaming and trying to tear his, his theater apart. And um, not me, because I'm standing next to the door. I'm, I'm, I want to get out as soon as possible. My friend says, look, we're from Rickenbacker. We've come down from London. It's a guitar company. John Lennon is one of our clients, and we need to talk to him. And he says, I'd like you to call down, if you would, and arrange uh, for us to get in. Next thing I know, he's got the phone in his hand, right? So uh, we go down, we go through the police court, right? I mean, they're holding people back to let us walk through. We get to the gate, um, we say our names, and they say, fine, you're on the list, you can come in. They let us in, and they say, Miss, uh, the Beatles dressing room is just down the corridor. We walk down the corridor, we knock on the door, and out comes John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh! You're <laughs> kidding me! And my friend says, look, um, we notice you're playing a Rickenbacker guitar. By now, he's not pretending to work for Rickenbacker anymore. Right. He's, he says, I've never seen a Rickenbacker before. He, he, that, I'm, we're, we're really curious. I mean, do you like it, and what is it? And Lennon, who's bored and doesn't have anything to do, says, oh, oh it's fucking great. I mean, that, that's always rather great. <laughs> and um, so he goes in and he gets, it's the black one. I'm so, you've seen Hard Day's Night, right? Yeah. So, so it's, the old, it's the black, it was, it was white, but he, he spray painted it black. And he comes around and he puts it around my friend's neck, who, and he can't play, so, so he gives it to me. So I'm, I, I now have John Lennon's guitar around my neck. John Lennon's standing in front of me, so I start playing Chuck Berry riffs. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And um, eventually, I mean, you know, he chats to us for, oh, it must be 10 minutes. I mean, he had nothing better to do with his life. He's waiting for the next show. But here's where it gets interesting, because you think you've heard what's interesting, and you haven't. Okay. Here's where I enter Beatle history. Um, he says, what did you think of the first show? And I tell him the truth, because I'm, I'm so starstruck at this point. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of gabbling. So I say, I, you know, it was the best band I've ever seen in my life, which it was. The Beatles, absolutely incredible. He said, I couldn't, and I'm saying, I couldn't quite hear you. What I mean is George's amplifier uh, is directional. And I'm sitting right in front of the speakers, which means that I'm hearing a lot of George. I mean, if I was sitting over to one side, it wouldn't be like that, but I'm hearing a lot of lead guitar. 
And so I say um, to John Lennon, um, I couldn't really hear what you were doing because um, I was hearing, uh, pretty much all I was hearing was George. But what I did hear, it sounded great. The next thing I know, uh, Lennon is, is in a huff and he's grabbed the Rickenbacker and he's making comments about George and he's gone back into the dressing room. <laughs> now, I don't think anything about this until the next morning. Didn't get to sleep till about three o'clock in the morning. I just met a Beatle, um, and I, during the week more Beatles. But um, I just met John Lennon, and so I, I'm lying awake. Eventually, I fall asleep. Get up in the morning, and the, the morning paper, the Bournemouth Echo, we take it. So we have it. It has a review uh, of the Beatle concerts the night before, and it says, first night, first show, absolutely incredible. One of the greatest things we've ever heard. The Beatles are just as good as we thought they would be. Incredible. Second show, John Lennon played so loud we couldn't hear anything else. <laughs> <laughs> because of you. Because of me. And, and, what I, and you I, said to I, him. I read this and I thought, I did that. I, I ruined a Beatle concert. <laughs> I, and and, and the, I, I realized immediately that no matter what I did for the rest of my life, even if I had hit records, it was not going to be as significant as this one thing I did when I was 17. <laughs> You made your mark on, on pop culture on I planet did. Earth by ruining one Beatles concert. <laughs> I love it. And I did it accidentally. I really didn't mean to do it. Had you, uh, over the course of the next uh, 20 years, run into John Lennon and no. brought that story up? The interesting thing is I didn't run into him, but I spent um, probably the best part of a year working with Yoko Ono, of all people. Um, because she had a tape uh, I had a tape recorder and Yoko was demoing her early, okay. her early stuff. And so... Um, as I say, one day she met a man with a bigger tape recorder, and that was it. So that was John Lennon. So I met John before he knew Yoko, and I met Yoko, worked with Yoko extensively before she met John. After that, didn't see either of them again. But I did occasionally get messages from Yoko, but um, that's it. Couple questions about that story. You were 17, uh -huh. and you've got a young face, even okay. now. Uh -huh. So when you were 17, you. I, did you look 12, 13? I mean, um, probably, yeah. And so, so you're a little nervous, and this is your best, your good friend's idea. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't um, my idea. I've got to know what that guy went on to do, because that took a lot of a lot of guts to he, pull that off to go meet John Lennon. What well, he, did he end up doing? He he ran a record store, and and eventually wrote a book about the Beatles in Bournemouth, which is called Bournemouth a Go Go. Uh, which is on Amazon. If you, if, if you really want to know what he did, it's all in his book. He wrote a book about it. Okay, and what was his name? John Kremer, K-R-E-M-E-R. -E -E and the book is called Bournemouth, which is the town we grew up in. Bournemouth a go-go. Is uh, this story in the book? And the story's in the book. <laughs> I love, I love this. <laughs> and, and not only is that story in the book, but, but the rest of it, too, because we spent most of the rest of the week bothering the Beatles and hanging around with them. So we, I think we ended up in a press conference where... where I think uh, my friend managed to break George's pencil, and uh, oh, I mean, it went on and on. I mean, there, there's lots more stories. We, we made friends with one of the Dakotas so that we could kind of move in and out of the hotel. <laughs> I can imagine you, th this this could be a 22-day straight, oh, 24 hours conversation with you about, I got, about I got your chased, life. I got chased down the street. Um, the opening act on the show was a guy called Tommy Quickly. Now, you won't know anything about him. Um, he never had a hit. He was managed by Brian Epstein, though. Um, and, and he was, uh, so they're trying to break him, and so he becomes the opening act um, on, the, on the, the Beatle tour. Um, and also, we'd made friends with, uh, I think it was Ray, somebody. He was the bass player of the Dakotas. So we're hanging out with uh, Tommy Quickly and Ray from the Dakotas. And their hotel is uh, three doors away from uh, the, the Gaumont, where they were playing. 
So we come out of the hotel and we're going to go to, you know, soundcheck or something. We've just attached ourselves to, you know, the Dakota and Tommy Quickly. And uh, there were, uh, you know, as there always were at that time, a whole gaggle of fans outside waiting for something, anything to happen. And they notice us and they recognize that two of us are part of the show and the other two of us look like we're young enough to be something they don't know what. So all of a sudden, 500 people are screaming and charging at us. I mean, literally charging at us. And, and um, oh my God. So we ran. And, I <laughs> and I, I'm absolutely nobody. And I, I'm being chased down the street by 500 girls, and all, all of whom are screaming. And I think that, you know, there's something to this pop business. I should give it a whirl. <laughs> Al Stewart is joining us on Yacht Rock Radio, and uh, the humility that I've uh, seen in you from just meeting you, it's, it's amazing. I mean, the career you've had and, and the fact that you said you'd rather talk about other people than yourself. Uh, I'd like to steer it back toward you, if I could, and talk about uh, some of the places you've been on planet Earth where you've got a baseball hat on and you're just, you're just being Al. Uh, you're trying to be incognito, and you turn, you're in line at the bank, or you're at an airport, and you turn around, and somebody goes, Oh, my God, you're Al Stewart. Never happens. i tell you why. That never, ever happened once? Um, it's certainly... I, maybe if I'm, an, I'm at a gig. I, I don't remember it happening elsewhere, but the, and there's a reason for it. And okay. I think it's really... It wasn't done deliberately, but it's really, really clever, and I'm really, really glad. Um, uh, the reason is that if you look at those album covers, everything, past, present, and future, modern times, year of the cat, time passages, my face isn't on any of them. Uh, we, always had a, we always had a drawing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the year of the cat, you know, was a really clever drawing, I think. Classic. But, but um, you know, I'm not on those covers, which meant that while we had, or at least not on the British ones, and I'm not on the American year of the cat or time passages, uh, which means that while the record was in the top 10, I was living in Los Angeles, I'm walking down Sunset Strip, and into Tower Records, which is the absolute epicenter of the music business, and I did that every day for a year, and I was never recognized. <laughs> and, and, that, and that is because I'm not, I, my face wasn't on the front cover of the album, and no one knew what I looked like. The, actually, there was a time, I think we were playing in uh, Grand Rapids, um, Michigan, and um, not only did people not recognize me, but they refused, the theater I was playing in refused to believe it was me. I've got an English accent and a... And a and I got a guitar case in my hand, but they say, you know, you're not him, go away. And, and they wouldn't let you in. They wouldn't let me in. So we had, to, uh, we had to go over to the local restaurant across the street. We had to call the promoter, have the promoter call the uh, theater manager, and then have the theater manager call the guy on the door. And we had to do all of that before they'd even let us into the building. And I'm playing there, and my name is outside the building. <laughs> So you, you want to hear about humility, you learn it very quickly on the road. You know? That's fantastic. So the album covers, I mean, by design, you, I mean, you like the drawings and the artwork, yeah, but yeah. were you thinking, okay, you know what, I don't want to put my face on here because I'm, no, I'm a humble I mean, guy, I don't want to get a lot of attention. I, I love the idea of being a fly on the wall. That's I mean, great. I don't think of myself as a, as a rock star, I think of myself as a writer. Uh, and the last thing you want in a room full of people is attention. You want to be the one who's paying attention, you know what I mean? So um, I don't, uh, I never, I, I, I love the idea that no one has ever known who I am. I mean, it's like, or was, or whatever, whatever way you want to look at it. Quote of the day, you don't want to be the one getting attention, you want to be the one paying attention. Yes. I love that. Life lessons well, from go. Al Stewart. And I'll leave you with this. Um, you walk into a, a tavern or a, a concert hall or a bar or a restaurant, and there's a cover band uh, on the stage, or even a karaoke bar. 
uh, and somebody's on stage, whether it's a cover band or just some housewife singing one of your songs, has that happened to you where you walk in and you hear Time Passages yes. or one of your tunes um, playing, and, and it, how's that make you feel? Well, I, 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 it, twice it's happened, which were the most wonderful and memora, uh, memorable things ever. Um, one was I was in San Francisco in Chinatown, and I'm walking past, it was a restaurant, but it looked like a sort of a bar restaurant. And I hear it's something is vaguely, it's vaguely familiar. It, it doesn't ring any bells. I think I've heard something like this before. And then it's and, and it sounds like it's like being played on sort of Chinese traditional instruments or something. It sounds like a folk song, and I'm hearing bling, 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 bling. And then again, bling, 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 bling. And and then a voice starts singing words, but I can't work out what they are because they're sung with a, a thick Chinese accent. Mm -hmm. And then right at the end, I hear Yi O Ka. So I stop, and then I hear it again, bling, 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 bling. And then I hear Yi O Ka, and 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 it was a Chinese band who really didn't know how to speak English very well, and they were playing Gear of the Cat. So that's good, but I've got a better one. Uh, event, oh, better one than that. Yeah. That, oh, that's so great. So then, then I'm in St. Louis, Missouri, and I'm in a hotel, and I'm I, I have a gig the next day. So all I've done is I've just gone into the restaurant to, you know, to eat something, and I'm, I'm planning to watch a movie, go to bed, and then get ready for the show the next day. Um, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just at a table by myself, and a, a girl comes out in a long flowing dress that reaches down to the ground, and she gets and she gets a harp, and she starts playing the harp. And, and it's, it's, it's the idea of the hotel that in their nice restaurant they will have a young lady playing the harp. So far, so good. Nothing more high class Nothing than a harpist in harpist. a nice restaurant. So then, 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 then she plays On the Border, which is a track off like Year of the Cat, which floors me because she's not even playing Year of the Cat. She's playing like one of the album cuts from my album, and it's definitely my song. So that stops, and then she plays Flying Sorcery, which is also a, a track of my album. Then she plays Year of the Cat. At this point, she's just played three consecutive songs of mine in a row. I've never met her. We're in a hotel in, in St. Louis, Missouri. She's playing my songs on a harp. I, and I go over, I say, I have to ask, well, why are you, I, I'm, I'm asked So her, you did go up and talk yeah, to her, thank I, goodness. I, I said, okay. why are you playing all my songs? And she said, well, um, she said, I normally have a lot of music books with me. I'm playing them off of a music book, um, but I left them at home, and the only one I have is yours. <laughs> <laughs> so she proceeded to play the entire album, just reading it off the music from the book. Wow. She, and then you hired her because she was such a great musician. Well, I couldn't. I mean, you know, uh, when moving. you walked up to her, did you say, "Why are you playing these yeah. Al Stewart songs?" And or did you introduce yourself and say, "I'm Al Stewart. These are my songs." Well, I did. I told her that. And, and, and what she, was her reaction? Well, she said, "Oh, well, she was pleased to meet me." But she held up. It was a book of sheet music. It's like it was all the songs from *Year of the Cat*. It was just all the sheet <laughs> music. And she, I mean, she just had grabbed it and, and, and rushed off to the hotel. And she had put, opened the book and she was just playing them all in order. <laughs> that is that is so cool. Well, as you can hear, we're uh, backstage. Uh, the other bands are on the stage. Al Stewart's still playing. Uh, I'll let you go real quick. Get ready for your show. But uh, I guess uh, sum it up for us. How do you how do you still like playing on stage? Playing live? Playing to your fans? Um, well, I mean, it's I don't know anything else. Like I said, I, I've done this. I, I was obsessed with records when I was 11, 12, 13, and uh, I not only did I like buy records with you know like anytime I possibly could but I was so obsessed if I learned the serial numbers and I would read not only the title of the song but I'd memorize the music publishing company and who wrote it and all of this I mean I can still do this take a message to Mary 
uh, by the Everly Brothers in England was the London American HL 8942. Now, after 50 years, I still know serial numbers. I was that obsessive. Uh, and so, do I still like doing it? Yeah. I mean, I've never considered anything else. It's too late to take up professional basketball. This is what I'll have to do. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for coming on. It's Mr. Al Stewart, uh, member of the BBC Lifetime Achievement Award Winners Club and uh, songwriter extraordinaire. And for our listeners that want to get in touch with you, uh, I know you're on Twitter. Uh, maybe Facebook, your website, what are those digital properties? Um, actually, no. I don't know anything about computers. I, I have no <laughs> idea what a tweet is, except that your president seems to like them. Um, and <laughs> uh, and um, I, I, Facebook, I barely understand it, but um, I, I'm not technical. I don't even have a cell phone. They can't get a hold of me. You do not have a cell phone? No, no. That, I'm, I'm actually envious. Uh, I'm oh. going on vacation soon, and I'm looking for... I'm not bringing my phone. I want to check out for an entire week and yeah, I don't want people calling me I mean it, it, it's fabulous you can go on the road nobody can get hold of you I mean I like going out for you know several weeks and the, and the, no I'm sorry you can't I mean, <laughs> do you have email you don't have to give me your email but do you have um, email I believe I, so but I never answer it so it, it's not uh, I, I'm just not a technological person I'm, and I like to tell people that I write songs um, uh, by candlelight with, um, with a, a quill pen <laughs> it's not true but I like to tell them <laughs> Uh, but I, I just, I'm not, the technology, the, there, are, there must be good things to say for it, but I mean, I found a lot of, if I, if I write a lot of historical songs, and if I'm trying to write about 1648, I don't want to be doing it on a computer, you know, it's yeah. just, it doesn't make any sense. So I write long-handed an exercise book, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, that's what I do. I and don't, don't have any technology, I don't have any recording equipment or anything like that. I was just going to ask about recording, if you're, you know, on the road in a hotel room and you, and you have a tune hit your head, I mean, how do you, how do you know, how do you remember those notes? You, Sometimes I head? don't. Sometimes I don't. You, <laughs> but it, it's, it's, I don't, I don't like the idea of, I, I like the idea of the Shakespearean troubadour, you know what I mean? I like that idea. It's, it's, um, it's something that appeals to me. I don't like the idea of um, carting around electronic devices in order to make music. And especially I don't like the idea of drum machines and auto-tune and all the rest of the stuff that goes with it. I think once you start getting seduced into this kind of technology, um, you might not be as good a writer as if you've never taken any notice of it in the first place. <laughs> That is that is wonderful to hear. So well, probably not. I'm probably totally stupid, but I mean, it's just how I think. You know, it's just another way to do things, and, and you're not seeking well, attention. Works, you're trying it, to pay attention. It works for me. I mean, it, it works. And if I'm writing a song about the Russian front in World War II, you can't be doing it into a into a, um, like a recording device. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, I want to be in. Uh, 1941. I want to be there. You know what I mean. I don't yeah. want to be. I don't want distracting things. Or if you, you came to my house, you wouldn't see any electronic equipment apart from the television set. You know, I just I don't have it. I don't need it. I don't want it. You know. There's a TV set. That's it. Do you have cable? There's a there's a computer <laughs> that we sometimes use in the in the. I don't know if we've got cable. I mean, I don't pay attention <laughs> to that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> My girlfriend has a, has a cell phone, I confess, so if it's absolutely necessary to get hold of her, then she can reach me. But if you absolutely need an Uber or a pizza, she can take care of you. I can't get Ubers because I don't have a cell phone. <laughs> I can walk down the street and get a, get a pizza, but Ubers are out of the question here. <laughs> I love it. But well, at, least, a... at least I know what one is, which I didn't until the other day. Um, uh, it, it's it's a brave new world. Eventually, I'm going to have to break down and deal with it, but um, I've held it at bay as long as I can. Uh, you know who else doesn't have a cell phone? It's Brad Pitt. Um, I read a, 
there was a list they published of uh, 12 celebrities, quote unquote, who don't have cell phones. A lot of interesting people on that list. You know, I know they all have personal assistants who have cell phones, so it's cheating. It is cheating. <laughs> yeah, when you have a staff of 50 people that have a cell there phone, they can get in touch. But with I do you. like the idea of of, uh, of not playing this game because you do you do see people um, and everyone is seeing these people who are glued to this thing 12 hours a day and I don't know what they're doing on it. You, how many people can you talk to in a day? How many games can you play? You know, it just seems a terribly intrusive object. You know, It is. And, I uh, admit it. And uh, I don't want it intruding on my life, so I don't have anything to do with it. Well, maybe the uh, the next Al Stewart tour is, will be brought to you by uh, Samsung and AT&T, and they'll give you a free phone. Well, whatever they are, yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Yacht Rock Radio, the smoothest soft rock from the late 70s and early 80s. For more smooth, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Yacht Rock Radio. Yacht Rock.